Well, how do I start this? Uh, we are coming towards the end of July, and I guess I just want to say this. I love Christmas. <laughs> I really do. Um, so let's just sort of get into Christmas food, okay? Can we, Dave, can you come back up and we'll sing some Christmas carols? He's still walking. That's not going to happen. I don't understand, you know, you always hear this Christmas in July phrase, which I don't get because it's not the halfway mark. It's beyond halfway. Isn't June the halfway mark? Does that make sense? It's the sixth month. December's 12. Seems like that's half. But for some reason, we always hear this Christmas in July, and I want to thank Hallmark Channel for posting a lot of Christmas movies out there, some good repeats. I don't know. But I, I don't know if it's, it's not the decorations, it's, it's not the food. It's definitely not the gifts because I enjoy giving more than receiving, right? So I'm trying to, you know, I was trying to figure this out. Why do I love Christmas so much? And I, and I figured it out, okay? Here's why I love Christmas so much. I believe that Christmas is a love story. It's John 3.16 in 3D. You know what I'm saying? That, that's why. For God so loved the world. It's a love story. And, and it's highlighted right there in that one season. God gave us his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's God's incredible gift to us, his son, Jesus Christ, eternal life. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, right? And the truth that the God of this universe loves us and then demonstrates his words by putting it into action. That's, that's what Christmas is, right? It's, it's mercy to all. It's grace to all. It's salvation for everyone who believes. What an incredible gift. What an incredible expression of love. And that love story permeates the whole Bible. It's, it's the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's a love story of how God who wants to reconcile, and sometimes we haven't understood, what's reconcile? It's like to reunite. He wants to reconcile a relationship that was broken. And it wasn't just a resolution. It was a reconciliation. The Bible shows us that when, when man turned his back on God, God didn't sit idly by. He took action. He brought about reconciliation between man and himself. And if God left this up to us, left reconciliation up to us to begin, it would have never happened. Because Romans 3, 12 says, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Genesis 3, 9, God calls out to Adam. You may remember this. Just as today, God calls out to those who are lost. And like Adam, who had fallen, we have fallen. Adam had turned away from God. We've turned away from God. Yet no sooner did Adam sin then God pursued him and took the initiative in reconciling man back to himself. And he had this incredible plan in Genesis 3.15. What I love is, is it doesn't stop there in Genesis. Like I said, the love story of God permeates the whole Bible. And as you move through the Old Testament into the New Testament, you see how God's reconciling this relationship between us and him. Philippians Chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, says this. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. 
Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, talking about Jesus Christ. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. God is a great pursuer of us, leaving the glory of heaven, coming into this world to save us. What an incredible God he is. Some people think that God hates them. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord isn't really slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. For the person out there that says, oh, God hates us. God wants to send people to hell. This verse right here should just sort of, I don't want to say slam it in their face, but once they read it, everything should be put on hold and the brakes should be halted right there. And you're like, stop. Like, what? You mean God doesn't want everybody to, to die and go to hell? No, God wants everyone to repent. God wants everyone to be saved. He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed. That's not God. So Jesus describes even the heart of this pursuing God in Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 and 14, when he said this, If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of those one hundred wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 90 others, 99 others <clears throat> excuse me, on the hill and go out in search of that one that's lost? Look at verse 14. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even... One of these little ones should perish. God doesn't want one to perish. That's, that's the heart of our pursuing God. This is that love story I'm talking about. So why do I love Christmas? Because it's the highlighted season of God's love. And, and, and during that season, we extend God's love to other people. And we're so giving and so kind and so full of joy, right? It seems we show more compassionate love at Christmas than any other season. But life is not about a season, is it? It isn't just one season. It's, it's our life in whole. It's about our relationship being reconciled, being reunited with God. And because of that relationship, God says, now I'm commanding you to reconcile your relationships with one another. Oh, we've got things right now between us and God, right? We've reconciled that relationship thanks to the work of his son, Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with God, but God says, now I want you to reconcile relationships with one another. Whatever's broken, I want to help you fix that. I want those relationships to be better than what they are. And we aren't only told to love one another. Oh, God goes deeper than that. He says we got to forgive one another. Come on. Forgive one another? That's tough. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Jesus said... Oh, and you got to love your enemies. Oh, now time out, time out, time out, time out. Now, I love loving my family. I can do that. And I even have conflict with my family. But, I can, but love my enemies? Oh, come on, God. You know, we desire to go back <clears throat> to the Garden of Eden prior to sin, prior to death, prior to evil, right? We, we want what? Paradise and peace, don't we? But what we find in life is punishment and pain. We battle against that. Instead of peace with one another, we have pain with each other. Conflict arises. Instead of the love that we experience, we experience hatred. 
Where does that conflict come from? We've, we spent about four weeks on this, and then last week we had Children's Lantern here to show you how they're putting love into action, taking care of children. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we looked in the book of James a few weeks back, talking about where does conflict come from? It comes from within, doesn't it? The cravings and the desires within us are blocked, and because of that selfishness being designed, denied, we experience these emotions that conflict with our soul. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> I'm going to put this on the screen, but I'm going to make you do a little work. I'm going to be spraying Scripture all over the place this morning, okay? This is one of those days where I'm not just going to one passage and going through that passage. This is one of those days where I'm going to be putting a lot of Scripture on the screen, and I'm going to say, hey, you might want to mark this, you might want to read this. Romans chapter 7, verse 21. <clears throat> Paul says this. I've discovered the principle of life. That when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. Oh, can, you, can you start relating to Paul right here on this one? I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will flee from this life that is dominated by sin and death? You see, when our expectations and our desires are not met, the fight begins. The conflict arises. And before we know it, that family reunion, that Thanksgiving dinner, that, that Christmas gathering is no longer a Norman Rockwell painting. It's it's sort of a disastrous artist rendition of man gone bad. I saw a cartoon in the, <clears throat> the paper the other day. And, and I'm going to share with you because here's the deal. I get the newspaper about six out of seven days it comes to my house. Okay? And I read the comics on an average of one day out of the week. And usually it's a Sunday comics. I don't know why, maybe because they're in color. But for some reason, last week, as I was doing sermon preparation, as I had been doing some sermon prep, and I picked up the newspaper, grabbed it and started reading it, and it was the sports section. It was like, oh. And then I looked at the date at the top, and it was like, this is a week old. This is old news. So I just, um, I've got the paper in my hand. I might as well just go to the comics. I went to the comics, and this comic was right there. It was uh, Family Circus. And I love this, this comic. It's like, Mommy, look, even in a city of brotherly love, you know, these kids, the family's fighting, right? <clears throat> Understand, as I said, I was preparing for, for this message a week ago when this happened. And it's almost like God said, hey, hey, check out this cartoon. It's going right with what you're saying. See, even in a family, there is friction. Even in family, there is conflict. Even in the city of brotherly love, there is conflict. Even in the church, there could be conflict. Sin creates conflict everywhere. Not just in our family, but even in our church family. It's like the church family? Let me hear you say yes. Yes, that wasn't very strong because none of you want to admit that we might have a problem. I'm not here to point out any problems this morning. I'm just saying it can happen, and it does happen. But let me ask you another question. Is there hope? 
I'm going to let you answer this for me. Let me ask you again. Is there hope? Yes. I put the answer up on the screen. Just in case you didn't know the answer. Yes, there is absolute hope. The Bible's clear. If you're still at Romans chapter 7, look at verse 25. Verse 25 goes on to say, Thank God the answer for our hope is where? In Jesus Christ our Lord. There is hope. Sin creates conflict. It separates us from God. But Jesus Christ came to reconcile us. Now last week I wasn't here. Myself and actually there's about 31 of us from the church that were at a camp. Um, some of them came that day to pick up their kids. And it was an FCA leadership camp. And I'm just going to say this. Uh, it was awesome. I'm going to show you some pictures. And then after the pictures are done, i got a couple, uh, a couple campers that are going to come up front. But this is our camp. Um, it was a three, or three and a half, four day camp. And all the pictures up here basically should have a picture of some of our kids in it. Uh, there's one of the more boys right there. Um, from competition to quiet times, Dave came one night and helped lead worship at one of our chapels. The chapels were phenomenal. The speakers were incredible. After every competition, we circled up and prayed. There were 64 campers there, 16 college students. So there's 80 students really there serving and learning what it means. How do I pray? How do I share my faith? How do I create a lesson that I can share in a Bible study? How do I have a quiet time? All this they were learning at camp, having a lot of fun, sweating in that 90-degree weather, and then enjoying some quiet time, some free time at the pond and in the pool. They did some activities where they had to build things together. It was quite an incredible time. And while you're looking at those pictures, I'm going to ask, uh, Dan, I need a microphone. I think Christian walked off with it. And I'm going to ask the Pena boys to come on up. Not that I'm putting them on the spot. They did actually volunteer for this. So. <clears throat> There's... Thank you, Greg. All right, if you could take the mic and introduce yourself to everybody. Tell them who you are. Um, Aiden Pena. Tristan Pena. All right, Aiden and Tristan. Um, all right, guys, tell me about camp. Tell me, um, first of all, did you have a good time? Yeah. Yeah, I had a great time. Good, thank you. You're so casual about it. Yeah, yeah. We did evaluations with all the students, and all the evaluations came back. And uh, everybody, it was, it was like we graded things A to E, not A to F. Um, and everything landed in the A's. And everybody loved it. And everybody wanted camp to be longer. That was the only negative thing. It's too short, right? Yeah, we extended another day next year. So just for the good news, okay? Um, so tell me, what was one of your favorite things at camp? Uh, the competing against each other. Oh, hold the mic up and say it nice and loud again. Um, competing against each other. What was one of your favorite games? That you competed? Uh, the human tic-tac-toe. Human tic-tac-toe. All right, good. Um, the speakers. That was my favorite part. My favorite speaker was um, John Bruni. Oh, yeah, John Bruni. Uh, tell everybody who John Bruni is. He's um, a famous weightlifter, and he's super strong. 
Yeah, he's actually a pastor over in Fremont, Indiana. And uh, did you get something from John? What'd you get? Tell everybody what you got. Um, a pan that he bent. Did you bring it with you? Yes. Oh, yeah, you got to show that. That used to be a frying pan. The handle actually broke off. Looks like a burrito now, doesn't it? So he told everybody, where did, do you remember where he said he bought it from? Walmart. Yeah, so go to Ace. Anyway. <laughs> so he <laughs> said, have you tried to pull this apart at all? You yeah. can't do it, can you? <laughs> he rolled that baby up, and he did a, a, a few other things. Um, you guys want to tell me what he did with the bed of nails? Do you remember that? Um, there was this bed of nails, and he set it on his chest chest and people walked over it and some people jumped on it so he during one of his his stunts he said hey can somebody come up here and turn the music on the music was towards the front so i went up the front and i sat down on the floor and put the music going for him to do one of these things and i'm leaning there listening i'm thinking man this is really uncomfortable some of my back just poked i turned on it was this big bed of nails that's like, okay, that's why it's uncomfortable. There's all these nails sticking out, right? Well, he took those bed of nails, which was as tall as me, basically, and he laid down on the ground, and he laid that bed of nails on right on top of him. Then all the kids stepped on it as they went over him. And he used that illustration talking about um, how Christ took the nails for us and bridged the gap between us and God. There was Christ on the cross, right? So he sort of portrayed being that where it's like, I'm going to portray being Christ, these nails are going to be, and you need to get things right with God. And he had every single person walk in that room walk across, didn't he? And then, which one, one of you want to tell what Emily did? You remember who Emily was? The long jumper? What she did? What he had her do? Do you remember? Um, yeah. Go ahead. Um, he had some people try to jump, like, all the way across the room, but nobody could do it. And, like... That's supposed to, like, represent, like, God, that he, like, can make a path for you to cross. And, like, you can choose that path to go to God. Because we can't do it on our own. We couldn't jump that far, right? No. So Emily was this uh, girl that won in, in the jumping contest. Nobody was able to do it, but she went the furthest, right? Yeah. So what did he have Emily do when he was laying there? Um, jump on him. Yeah, how many times? Ten. Ten times. She just kept jumping on that board of nails that was on his chest the whole time. Amazing. All right. What other, what else would you like to share with everybody about camp? Um, <clears throat> that this is my second time going and that, well, this year I feel like I really connected to, to God and got stronger in my faith this time. Good. Um. The theme was like to be strong and you have to pick the right fight and be strong and you fight it and you have to be strong in your faith before you can be strong in your sport. Good. Thank you guys. You have a seat. Thank you very much. No doubt about it, um, camp was an incredible experience. And as I said, there were quite a few campers uh, that were there from our church. And so for me, it was even more fun to see our kids there and, and, and to just be encouraged and strengthened in, in their walk. Every speaker was phenomenal. Um, John Bruni and, and Barb Roos 
and uh, Alfonso Mack did fantastic jobs in speaking. It was, it was a pleasure to hear how God was working through their life. But here's the thing I want to share with you. As great as camp was, we experienced conflict at camp. Christian camp, you had conflict? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're not exempt. We had a young man that was being picked on. Little seventh grade boy. Perfect candidate. Sort of a, a big kid. Not very athletic. Kind. Trusting. And he got picked on. And it wasn't just him. I sat at lunch one day and I watched a couple other students pick on another junior high boy. And I watched it and I was like, Why? And I have to admit, I got a little righteously angry. You know, we say boys will be boys, kids will be kids, right? I'm not a fan, though, of picking and pranks and, and bullying. And, and why is that? Especially within the church or the body of believers, why is that? Because there's a scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, it says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, all and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. Verse 26 says this. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And those verses have been ingrained in my life. And so when I see the Christians fighting with each other or picking on each other, here's what I envision. I envision taking my hand and slapping myself across the face as hard as I can. Maybe making a fist and just punching myself. Or taking my foot and stepping on my foot. Or kicking my leg. Or hitting myself in the gut. And if I started doing that up on stage, you would all call for help, right? You'd say, Pastor Rex has lost his mind. He's insane. Right? Or please don't tell me you're going to sit there and watch, right? Some of you are like, oh, let's get this on YouTube. Yeah. <clears throat> if you would see that happening, I hope you would respond and do something, right? Yes? Thank you. Phew, okay, I'm getting a little worried about this church. So here's the deal. If I see a Christian brother picking on a Christian brother, I'm seeing a fist hit my face. I'm seeing a Christian sister pick on a Christian sister the same way I see myself kicking myself. Christians, when you fight with each other, it's the body hitting each other. That makes no sense. Why do we do that? And so I looked at these kids and I said, it's got it's to stop. We're family. We're members of one body. Love is the greatest command and as Christians, if we aren't loving one another, then how will the world know we are Christians? How will the world know who Jesus Christ is if we're fighting each other, if we're picking on each other? Jesus said, I'm giving you a new command. Love each other. Just as I've loved you, you love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And you can't love God if you're picking on your family or your church brothers and sisters. And God wouldn't command us to do something if we were not capable of doing it. So he gives us that power to do it by his Holy Spirit. So we, we pulled the boys aside. We had a little man talk that night. And we said, this ends now. This is not how the body of Christ operates. Let me tell you something. The next two days of camp was some of the most phenomenal days of camp. We saw God work in incredible ways. We had kids out serving one another, trying to out love one another. Oh, now there might have been some picking on that we didn't see. 
But the love was incredible. The power is not in knowing God's commands. It's not me putting scripture on the screen or you open up your Bible. The power is God working through his commands. The power is through God's spirit at work. Galatians 2.20 says this. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but who Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, we extend God's love to others not by trying harder. I'll try better to love you. No, you can only do it through the power of Jesus Christ. And our Lord knows that we will face conflict in our relationships, so he gives us his spirit so we can respond better. So when conflict comes, and it will come, we know what God wants. But sometimes we just don't respond the right way. How do we respond? I'm going to throw some ideas on here because sometimes, you know, we talked about where conflict comes from, but the question is, well, so how should we respond? How do we respond to conflict? Here's some natural responses. First of all, we, we try to flee. We try to run away. Uh, we deny the conflict at first. And instead of talking in marriage or work, we don't talk about it. We see it, but we don't want to address it. You know what I'm saying? How many times has this happened in your, in your marriage maybe? Is there something wrong? No, nothing's wrong. Okay. As a guy, if, if I ask that to Jenny and I'm like, is there something wrong? She's like, No. Okay, because I want to be off the hook. Okay, so I'm like, she said no, so I can go back to doing what I'm doing. But you know what I know deep inside? There's something wrong. Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked it in the first place, right? There's obviously something wrong. But a lot of times we, we flee, we escape, we deny it. Sometimes we just run, we escape. You know, we, like, we just leave. Leave a marriage, leave a church, leave a friendship, leave a job, whatever it may be. But what's the problem with escape? problem is it's still there because some of that problem's in us. So wherever we go, we're still taking the problem with us. So you can escape all you want, but you're taking it with you. The other natural response is to fight, to attack. In the corporate world, we know it as a dog-eat-dog world, so do what you got to do to get ahead. We're trained to get to the top, be number one. So when conflict arises, we do what we do to fight to get there. Sometimes we'll blame people. Oh, it, it's your fault. We shove all the responsibility to the other person. We tell everyone about it so we can get them to join our point of view to make it feel like we got more people behind ourselves. And we may even escalate to assaulting, not just physically, but emotionally. With our, ta- with our tongue, we use intimidation. We use swearing. We use threatening. We may even take people to court. We attack. Escape or attack. Those are natural responses when conflict arises, right? It's just natural. It's just natural. Some of us have a combination. We escape, we escape, we escape, and then we attack. Some of us, we attack, and then we escape. You got some kind of combo move going on, right? I'll tell you this. I don't like conflict. Those of you who know me, you know me well. I don't like conflict. If I can avoid it, I probably will. When conflict arises, I've learned this, so you can't run from it. I've learned and I realized that when conflict arises, you know what happens? There's an opportunity for God to do something amazing. There's an opportunity for me to trust God. That tension, that conflict we had at camp, 
You know what that conflict did? It allowed all of us at that camp to see Jesus Christ at work in the body. And we saw how he amazingly resolved that conflict. Instead of a natural response, we need a supernatural response. So I want to encourage you with this. First of all, let's get real about ourselves, okay? Let's get the log out of our eyes. That's what Jesus would say. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Once you turn in your Bibles there with me, Matthew chapter 7, first book in the New Testament. It's a quick passage we're going to read, and then we're going to go on to another passage. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Jesus saying, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eyes, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? It's like you're looking at somebody, you're judging them for something they did, you have some conflict with them, and what do we do? We look and we're like, oh, look what you're doing in your life. And Jesus says, that's like a speck, right? And Jesus says, but you've got a log coming out of your eye. Well, they've got a little splinter in there. You've got a log coming out of your eye, and you're calling out that little that little splinter in theirs? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Jesus said this, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, in conflict, we always look at the other person. And Jesus says, when in conflict, start with yourself. Before you start pointing out all the negativity in somebody else, why don't you look at yourself first? Here's the second thing it is. Jesus says we should take the high road. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this. So whatever you do, eat or drink, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Why was Paul writing this? Because at that time when he's writing to the church in Corinth, the church, the church in Corinth was dealing with drunkenness, sexual immorality, fighting and conflict amongst each other. They were suing each other, taking each other to the court. There's some rough church issues taking place there. And Paul says, I've got to address this. I've got to address the, the hedonism that was going on, this, this sensual living of feeling pleasurable for myself. And Paul says, listen, 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 listen. Everything you do, it's got to be for the glory of God. So that thing you're doing right now, is that giving God glory? No? Then don't do it. Take the high road. When conflict arises, we have a choice to take the low road and punch back or to take the high road and say, what would honor God in this moment of conflict? What would he want me to do? We can throw water on the fire, which is godliness, or we can throw fuel on the fire, which is that horizontal focus of of past issues and other things that I'm going to get back, and it explodes. What would please God? You're in the book of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. It's our last passage we're going to look at. In this passage, Peter comes to Jesus and approaches Jesus with this this great question. It's a great question. And, And Jesus replies with a story. Starting in verse 21, Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? I mean... And then I forgive him. How many times should I forgive him? As many as seven times? See, Peter, in light of what Jesus said about agreement and unity, he hoped to sound extremely loving by suggesting that forgiving a, a, maybe a repentant brother, I should forgive him seven times because the rabbis, they're all teaching, according to the, the Jewish rabbis, three times is good. 
So Jesus, how about seven? Can you just see Peter just sort of throwing his shoulders back saying, that's a great answer, isn't it? Should I forgive him seven times? Because I know the religious leaders say three, right? But what did Jesus say? Look at verse 22. Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times, 70 times seven. Jesus isn't like throwing out some kind of math equation here or a number. Basically what he's saying is, um, I'm going after the unlimited number here, Peter. We're not going to count 70 times 7, 491. So at 491, I don't have to forgive them anymore? Unlimited. So Jesus goes on to tell the story. Verse 23, let's read it. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay it, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt. Now the king in this story expected his servants to be faithful and honorable in everything they did, and right, conducted in his business. But there's this one particular man who owed, he said what, 10,000 talents. Now, modern value of 10,000 talents, so you have in mind what, if we compare, they're, they're estimated somewhere between 12 million and a billion dollars, okay? So the figure that is given here clearly represents an unpayable debt. <clears throat> There's no way that this man is going to be able to pay back that money. He could sell his whole family in, into, into servanthood and slavery. It never happened. Never be able to repay in his lifetime. So the master commanded to sell the debtor and his family and all that, but the man in his in debt just says, I, I promise to pay it back. I'll do it. And it's like, there's no way you can pay it back. He's becoming very repentant, right? So he spoke as if he was given enough time he could pay off that massive debt. The disciples listening to Jesus probably think, oh, this, is, this is pretty humorous, Jesus, because this guy wants, there's no way he's going to pay it off. Master showed mercy promptly by compassion. So you know what? I'm going to forgive you of that debt. Those 10,000 talents, you don't have to pay me back. What an incredible act of forgiveness, isn't it? Now the story turns. The same forgiven man goes off to find one of his servants who owes him money. And upon meeting him, he immediately assaults him. He says he took him by the throat, demanded payment. The debt was real. A hundred denarii, okay, which was equal a hundred days worth of wages. So minute, so small compared to what healed, right? Matter of fact, they said if you put it in a fraction, it'd be one over 600,000. That's how much healed compared to what healed the master. You follow me on this? Let's read on verse 28. <clears throat> but when the same servant went out, he found out one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He seized him. He began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I'll pay you. And he refused. He went out and put him in prison while he, until he could pay the debt. The man who owed the smaller debt used the exact same plea. Forgive me, I'm sorry, I'll pay it back, right? But it didn't matter. This guy threw him in jail. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant. 
I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The principle is really clear here, church. God has forgiven such an incredible debt for us. We, we can never pay back. That any debt owed to us is absolutely insignificant in comparison. No man can possibly offend me to the extent that my sins have offended God. So when it comes to dealing with conflict, here's one of the final and things that I want to say is this. When we look at this guy, we don't like him, right? But aren't we like him? How many times, men, have you given your wife the cold shoulder for a couple of days because she did something? Or vice versa. Ladies, when have you given your husband a cold shoulder because he did something? When have we did something to somebody at work or somebody we don't even know and we sort of turned our back on them because they did something to us? We're just like that servant. What did God give you and I? Mercy and grace, didn't he? How can we receive mercy and grace from God and not allow it to affect us? We need to view offenses against us through the lens of God with grace and mercy. Listen, the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. The gospel is just not a ticket to heaven. It transforms every area of our life, church, including how we love others, how we forgive others, how we show grace to others. That's what God does. He Sometimes they'll say, you need to overlook that offense. And we're like, overlook that offense, God? I know Proverbs 19.11 says, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. But come on, God. Now, I understand, church, there are some things you can't overlook. Things that create walls between us. Maybe things that create serious harms. Things that have a destructive pattern we have to address. But there are some things that have happened to us that we need to step back and say, I'm going to overlook that by the grace of God. Because God has overlooked. He has forgiven me. He has shown me grace and mercy. And if I want to resolve conflict with you, I need to show you grace and mercy. How do we respond to conflict? Oh, not by trying harder, but by God's Spirit working through us, showing grace and mercy where it's hard to show grace and mercy. We can do this. Church, we can do this. Do you know why? Let me give you the answer. Because of what Galatians 2.20 said that we read earlier. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Church, Christ lives in us. Can we resolve conflict with others? Absolutely. Through the power of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, we can show grace and mercy to others. Where it's hard to show grace and mercy to others. We can do this by the power of God. Amen? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an incredible God you are. God, none of us like conflict. Oh, boy, we run from it. I don't like it. Sometimes we have to deal with it. 
Instead of fleeing and escaping or attacking, you said, hey, hey, first take that, take that log out of your eye. Look at your own life. You don't have it all together. You make a lot of mistakes. God, you remind us that you have forgiven us of these mistakes. We are like that servant who has a debt that we can never repay, but you have paid it and forgiven us. So now, God, in that grace and mercy, we look at those around us who maybe we have conflict with, and we need to show that same grace, that same mercy to them. And God, I can't do that on my own. I need your spirit to help me with that. But I believe the truth. I believe your word, as we all do here, that our old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but it's you living in us. So God, by the power of your son living through us, help us to show grace and mercy to others. In a world that's fighting, let us be the ones who show the love of God. We love you, Lord. We sing to you now. In thy name we pray.